Welcome to Story Kinetics, where we talk about the art of story. I'm Adam Skelter, and tonight we got Todd Lindsley with us. How are you doing, man? I'm well. How are you doing, man? <laughs> doing good. You're, you're particularly charismatic tonight. I'm feeling it, man. I'm getting gassed up. <laughs> What's gassing you up? <laughs> What's gassing me up? Uh, it's a, a Diet Dr. Pepper. Oh, In a water okay. bottle, because that's a great idea. That way the soda police don't know. Yeah, the soda police, they think I'm being healthy. They're like, ooh, is that like a, a, some sort of mix of some healthy things? I'm like, no, it's Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I, but I won't say no. I'll be like, yes, this is peach drink, something with peach in it. Yeah, something natural. I'm glad you're laughing at this. <laughs> Kombucha. It's kombucha. It's yes. They call this dark Kom- kombucha. Doctor kombucha. This is non-alcoholic doc- dark kombucha. <laughs> if any police officer asks, <laughs> how are you doing, man? What have you been up to? What's going on with your book right now? Um, I'm doing really good. Uh, we, um, yeah, we're wrapping everything up. We've we've got the cover. We've got the polish. We've got it all. Right now, we're just coming up with like the release date um, and the marketing strategy for releasing it. But um, it's going to be with uh, Riot Act Industries, uh, independent right. publishing company. We're just kind of in the home stretch with it, and uh, that's that's why we've been kind of like trying to figure out exactly when we're releasing the cover and and just getting everything up, uh, and then coordinating it with the podcast too, because you know we're we're hoping that of course this this audience is interested in my work as well as other audiences that mm. we're building. But um, now, mostly your, it's been that. Does your does your audience know that you have a novel that is available? To, I mean, I know you. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but I am no. I am one who read the Profit Margin. Yeah, uh, and I I'll be honest with you, uh, listeners, uh, it's one of the greatest books I've ever written, and I've read like oh. three books. The, the um, one of the greatest books you've ever written. <laughs> One of the greatest books I've ever read. Honestly, it, it is it's wonderful. I was like, that's the most it's, blatant plagiary I've ever seen. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wrote this I, book. I wrote this book, and it is wonderful. I love it. Yeah. But no, no. I Honestly, no joke. I, it is one of the most exciting. I remember reading it. I read it in about a week, which is a feat for me. Uh, it's two feats for me. I don't I don't know what it is, but it's it is it's difficult. But I remember wanting to get back to it every single time. I just would get irritated and just go, "Ah, oh, I just want to finish my book." It's a good book. Thanks, it's a really good book. But I will say this: profit margin uh, is actually currently not in print. Uh, oh, it's because not. Because Riot Act Industry is also going to be publishing that one as well. Really, they they got so that we're one. also going to be publishing through them. Yeah, we're going to be publishing through through we're going to be publishing everything through Riot Act Industries right now. Wow. So that's that's profit margin. I'm going to be re-releasing uh, the Lost Art of Story, which is just the transcripts mm-hmm. of uh, my first few videos. Uh, we're reformatting it. We're doing uh, some kind of better diagrams and better formatting. The first formatting was really messed up, and it uh, mm. didn't work very well. Right. Um, and we got a lot of got a lot of notes and complaints and stuff. But uh, it was good <laughs> content, so um, uh, it's it's one of my top sellers. So that's that's nice. Um, and then we're we're you know the next the next couple books are going to be out under Riot Act Industries. So 
Um, Excellent. So that that I'm really excited about. So we'll be we'll be you know keep tuning in, sign into or uh, be sure and subscribe to um, StoryKinetics.com, and you'll get all the updates every time we're releasing a new book and stuff. I'll make sure that everybody knows about it. And you, and you know, as members of my audience, I'll, I'll make sure that you get like special deals and stuff too. So, um, cool. awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for for asking. How about you? Well, what are you working sure. on? Well, uh, right now I'm still working on the uh, the tween drama uh, that mm-hmm. I think. Um, actually, I know that we we're gonna get you roped in into that one because. Uh, oh really? It is. It is a mess. Um, <laughs> but no, no. I I think it's a, a it's a fun opportunity. It's something I haven't seen before, so I'm kind mm-hmm. of excited about that. I've, I'm also working with a company on a Christmas movie. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. How's that one? Yeah, going? That's, well, that's just in the early phase of development, right? Yeah. Well, th- what they're doing is they're they're going to develop a they're going to put together kind of a sizzle reel, kind of a proof of concept. Which was my was which was my advice. I said, "Listen, guys, you need to show what you can do. Um, you know, put together a five minute, you know, to convey the tone, to convey the feeling, um, to really kind of hone the idea that you have into this something that you can actually show your investors. And they have some investors yeah. on the hook right now, so they're." Um, but it's it's actually something that's building. It might be something interesting for your audience because it is something that happens a lot in the film industry. Is we'll get a seed, we'll get seed money, and then we end up having to build from that seed money, and it's it's difficult. But I mean, I mean, honestly, it, on the uh, very local level, there are a lot of dentists and doctors who end up wanting to play movie maker, and they're mm. they're excited about and interested in investing in stories and the reason why they invest and the reason why they um, uh, want to do those things are honestly, I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you now because that's my job as a consultant, but yeah, there's lots of, there, there's, there's lots of ways to at- attack that. But anyway, so um, yeah, so we're just kind of in, you know, in the throes of doing all of that. That's cool, man. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Do you do you have dates yet for um for when you want to go into production or anything or is it it's just right now it's just uh Well, of course, of course they have an excitement and a, you know, a, an exuberance for wanting to, you know, start production this summer and mm-hmm. it's just not I, I I don't think it's in the cards for this project to start. Any time summer, this that's, summer, that's a month and a half away. <laughs> I know exactly, and 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 the reality is, is you've got to be. Uh, that's what happens sometimes when you sign on as an independent producer. You kind of end up having to be the voice of reason to the exuberance, which I I don't want to squash. I don't want to squash passion at all, but yeah, I want them. Not. I want them to be able to really think hard about what what project they're what they're working on so it yeah, I, and you i want to kind of manage expectations maybe absolutely absolutely yeah absolutely well cool well that's exciting man i i let me know uh where i can help out uh you you're already my go-to person for everything that i have in development so same if you need absolutely. any kind of consultation or anything you know that i'm i'm down for that um yeah absolutely cool uh, okay, well, let's uh, let's jump right into the um, story bites. Mm-hmm. 
So what's the story bites for today, Adam? Uh, well, today we I've been hearing some discussion. Uh, I've had a lot of questions uh, specifically about this thing about want versus need. Uh-huh. And there's there's a thing – there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of screenwriting gurus and lots of paradigms that talk about want versus need. And the problem is is that uh, if you're just starting out in screenwriting, maybe it's kind of helpful. Maybe that kind of like gets gets it across. But the truth of it is is want versus need is a very kind of uh, – it sabotages you if you really think about it. So – um, we have a character that has a conscious desire. That's a want. Okay. And I'm all about, I always begin trying to build a character or, or identifying, you know, what, what the, the, my entrance into a character is through the conscious desire. So when I know what they want, uh, then we can plot things out. And then the way they go about getting what they want tends to reveal their values and their inner conflicts. Now, the problem is, is that a lot of, a lot of, um, Writing gurus or writing consultants or script doctors will say, you know, this is about, you know, you need to identify the need. And the, the fact that they're even calling it a need shows that it's a kind of imposition or presumption of the writer imposing on the character what they think the right thing to do is. Now, if if you look at, for example, um, Michael Corleone from for The Godfather, he's such mm-hmm. a great example because it's such it's one of the most iconic um, moral mosaics uh, when it comes to story and character. His arc, he becomes, you know, he starts off completely resisting uh, becoming like a, a mob boss, a mafia mm. boss. Yeah. And by the end of the first movie, he's, you know, he is be- embraced as the next godfather. And a lot of people are saying that's a corruption arc or a dark arc or whatever. And the, the thing of it is, is, you know, if you're looking at terms of wants and needs, that paradigm doesn't fit. It doesn't work because it's not that he needed, um, he needed to become the Godfather. Um, what you really need to do is start to identify um, the unconscious drive, and this is why I kind of let go of the idea of want versus need. Because I used to do that too. I used to think in terms of want and need until I really started to delve into the characters, the psychology, and the motivations, and how that relates to the story. Sure. So th- what I what I realized was that. There is a subtle relationship, and this this is what gets into the actual character dynamics, is we have conscious desire, which is want. The character wants something. Um, and then we have the unconscious drive, the internal values, the worldview that is driving them to make the decisions that they're making. It motivates what they want. And uh, which is interesting because right now there's a big debate in philosophy about uh, is there free will? And a lot of the, the current thinking is that, that free will is largely an illusion. And the, the biggest argument about free will is um, you can't decide what you want. Therefore, mm. there is no free will. Everything is simply just um, biological imperatives acting on you. You're, you're kind of a, um, a pinball and a pin machine. Um, but what's interesting is, is – uh, it, that, that's more of a philosophical side to, to go about it. But with sure. the unconscious drive, it begins to delve into why we want what we want. And then at the core of that is usually an Achilles heel or uh, some sort of uh, – people call it a flaw. I'm hesitant to call it a flaw because usually what it is is it's a false belief they learned previously in mm. order to adapt to a certain situation, a certain moral sphere. And now that they're pursuing something – Every single – well, 
most stories, I can't say every single story, but most stories are about a character that wants something that's going to pull them out of their comfort zone. Now, when they're in their comfort zone, they are able to solve problems the way that they want to solve them. So their value system works. That's what we call a moral sphere. It's, it's just this area where they're completely comfortable operating and solving problems the way that they know how to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as they pursue something that pushes them out of their comfort zone, uh, then all of a sudden, this is where we start to experience arcs and we begin to transform their value system. Uh, Michael Corleone was resistant to become a member of the mafia, much less the leader of it. And yet, in order to protect his father and protect his family he learned that he had to go outside of his comfort zone. Um, and then Hail Caesar, another good example. You've got um, Josh Brolin's character, uh, Eddie mm-hmm. Maddox, who his whole job is just to solve problems. You know, Baird Whitlock going missing for a day is actually par for the course. What made this, what made it a story for um, Hail Caesar was the fact that he was also considering leaving the studio. Mm. And he was con- and leaving the studio is where he leaves his comfort zone. Right. So, so f- I would say forget about wants and needs. Mm. Focus more on conscious desire, which is wants, and look at the unconscious drive that makes them want. It, it asks why they want what they want, and then within that embedded is that kind of flaw or false belief that they're going to learn, and that that and then once and then once they. Um, exit out of their comfort zone, then they're going to be confronted by this thing called the moral imperative. Now we had talked about this before. So sure. uh, in previous podcasts, sure. and um, the more I think about this metaphor of the bouncer, the more, the more it fits every single story with a character arc that they transform. It's the world saying, you know, if you want to enter into this moral sphere, you're going to have to demonstrate these qualities and these values. Mm-hmm. That's all the moral imperative is. A lot of people confuse the moral imperative for the theme because they both have moral dimensions. But the moral imperative is the pattern or the the force of nature that they're confronting in conflict. And then the theme is the lesson we learn from the way that they navigate that that force of nature, that moral imperative. Yeah. Um, So – when we when we look at once it needs it it's just kind of uh, an insufficient way of looking at story. It, it ends up kind of we start to impose when we say, well, what they really need is to learn this lesson, um, or what they really need is this. Like I don't think Michael Corleone needed to learn to become the Godfather. It was the choice that he made in order to navigate this new moral sphere. Right. Um, and that's that's what I think at the core of wants and needs are. Um, it, do you operate with wants and needs when you're developing your characters, or, or how do you approach it? I I absolutely do. I, you know, I, I think that wants and needs have a lot to do with establishing your stakes, and ultimately, okay. when uh, you're looking at the wants and needs, why, you know, w- why would what would the world look like if, um. You know, like let's say we'll take Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Let's say Luke Skywalker's yeah. whole need is to stop Darth Vader from taking over the universe. Well, mm-hmm. what is the universe like if Darth Vader takes over the galaxy or whatever? You know what I mean? It's like, um, what is his want? Is his want so important? Or honestly, is it just going to be just another guy in charge? 
You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. if he doesn't get what he wants, if he doesn't get what he or what the universe thinks he needs, um, mm-hmm. what's the big deal? You know, w- what happens then? Uh, mm-hmm. When, for instance, um, we, you can take like a Christmas story. You know, mm-hmm. what did the kid want? He wanted a, a BB gun. Uh, well, what happens if he doesn't get the BB gun? He cries on Christmas morning. I guess that's the worst part yeah. of what he can, the worst part, thing that he could possibly manage, imagine. Um, you know, uh, the idea is basically the only stakes that are over the head of that entire family is, uh, you know, will Ralphie cry on Christmas morning because he didn't get what he wanted? And and ultimately, it's one of the reasons why the story itself kind of doesn't hold up uh, as a script very well, and it doesn't hold up. And I'm I'm going to get lots of enemies for this one, but it it doesn't. <laughs> I'm one if, of them. I love that movie. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, but the thing is, is ultimately, I don't think that although there are genuine moments of of uh, beautiful nostalgia in the film, if you've ever seen the remake of the movie. It kind of highly illustrates how <sighs> milk toast the story is, mm-hmm. um, and it, and ultimately it was that director and the, that cast that made that movie memorable. It really wasn't necessarily the script. Yeah, with a lesser cast and a lesser direction, absolutely, absolutely. I can see how that would be. Yeah, I can't even imagine them why they would want to remake it. Well, they, they did you see the live remake version that they? I think NBC did it oh, one really? year. Yeah, and oh, it was no. just you know, it just I know what they were thinking. I know, I know they were thinking, oh well, this bit of nostalgia is now nostalgia for a next generation, and so we yeah. want to kind of build on that nostalgia for people my age, you know, the Generation Xers, and the problem with that is that it just didn't it kind of fell flat Hmm. and and i really do believe a lot of that has to do with the fact that there weren't a lot of stakes involved nobody was going to lose a house nobody was going to he wasn't going to i mean what's the worst thing that could happen oh he gets a teddy ruxpin or whatever it is that you know what i mean it's like he um he gets something else and i do believe that stakes are incredibly important and the wants and needs are kind of integral in that whole process Mm. Um, I also think it helps in defining the character as well. Is this an altruistic character? Is this a selfish character? Mm. Um, which moves us into our show tonight uh, that we're going to yeah. be talking about. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you do you do use to... wants and needs to de- to develop your character? Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So the, Todd and I definitely represent two different paradigms the way we approach it. Like I'm I'm one who uh, I don't. I look at how we how uh, characters adapt, and they use they um, when they adapt to a new moral sphere and the way they're pursuing something. And largely, it's about the relationship between their Achilles heel and that moral imperative. Um, and I guess if wants and needs work for you, great. I mean, whatever works for you is great. The problem is that when you say something is a need, you're putting you're imposing a kind of moral judgment on them. This is what they need to do. And the truth of it is, is uh, especially when it comes to like morally gray characters or uh, morally ambiguous stories, um, want and need kind of flies out the window. 
Yeah, you know, and you can see that in the Coen Brothers, and you can see it mm-hmm. in in uh, a lot of Scorsese films. And yeah, um, I mean, uh, Dog Day Afternoon was this excellent uh, use of that because there were so many different challenges to society that that film actually represented. Uh, that I th- I think it's, it's too. yeah, it's a great film. It it's uh, fascinating. It has lots of twists to it that that. Uh, actually challenged the the audience at the time well that's interesting because you know i think each whatever paradigm works for you great but the truth of it is i think wants and needs is just a little general it's a little too non-specific and you're not actually looking at the machinery it's kind of like saying over there's an engine versus saying this is a carburetor this is how this works and this is the function it plays Mm. we've got the achilles heel the unconscious drive the conscious drive and they confront the moral imperative. That's what motivates the character. And that's for me why I use that engine to really build the characters, uh, even in a comedy. In fact, in a comedy, you can still, you can push the irony. You can push the contradictions even further. Um, which is what actually leads us to the movie we're going to be reviewing to tonight. Um, so let's jump into our vivisection. You want to? Yeah, absolutely. You want a vivisection. Okay, Todd, so what's our movie that we're going to be deconstructing this week? I care a lot. Yes, you do. You're a very empathetic man. I do, and we're also watching – we also watched the movie I Care A Lot. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, I Care A Lot is a crooked legal guardian who drains the savings of her elderly wards, meets her match when a woman she tries to swindle turns out to be more – then she first appears. Ooh. Yeah, it's directed by Jay Blakeson. Sorry, was that the IMDb logline? That is the IMDb logline. Let's give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Also, I owe them nine dollars this month. Can I give? Can I give my own little pitch of it? Yeah, go for it. I'd love to hear it. It's say anything meets Eastern Promises. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it for a minute. Yeah. Say, say anything with Lloyd Dobler. Right. He's dating. Uh, uh, what's her name? I don't want to buy anything. I don't want to sell anything. I don't want to. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ooh, Ioni so, Sky. Ioni, Ioni Sky. Sky. That's right. He's dating Ioni Sky, <sighs> and her father is running a retirement home. And then at the very end, yeah. you know, he's very condemning <gasps> of Lloyd. Oh, because he's like, yeah. It's it's his scheme. He's Dirty. hustling old people to take it. So it's say anything. It's the the climax of say anything meets Eastern Promises. Wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I can't say no to that. Right. Yeah. Well, top build on this film was uh, Rosamond. Is that how you say it? Rosamond? Rosamund uh, Pike? I've heard Rosamund, Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Pike. Ah, it's Irish. Uh, Rosamund Pike. Peter Dinklage. Um, Eliza Gonzalez. Now, these are the three that were top billed. However, it is important to mention Diane Weiss in this film. Yeah, she, she's great. She's a big part of the film. And, uh, yeah, she seemed to be a device as far as the trailer is concerned. But I think she's a big part of the film. Um. Yeah. There's a huge reason why I hated. I had so much anger for that for the main character was because uh, of Diane Weist. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, I mean, she, even though she was kind of, I mean, yeah. She didn't have okay, a big let's... role, but, like, I, I so empathized with Peter yeah. Dinklage and with her having her liberty and her freedom taken mm-hmm. away. Yeah. And just being trapped in this system. Okay, sorry. We'll get into that. We'll We'll get get into this. Now, I don't have a published domestic box office. or uh, All I have is a worldwide, and I do not have a budget for the film. Interesting. I could not not find one. Now, Netflix is kind of notorious for for, um, publishing budgets based on a release of some sort. Like, hey, we're going to do a Rosalind Pike... Uh, Rosamund Pike uh, uh, film, and you know it's going to be a twenty million dollar whatever. But mm-hmm. um, I did not, I could not find a budget for this one. Okay. Um, I didn't. I honestly, I didn't scrape the internet for it. I looked a couple places, couldn't find it, and thought, well, that's an interesting commentary on on uh, on Netflix and how they have a tendency to. Well, not really want to share their numbers with the general population. Um, yeah, and do we have any idea on like like streaming numbers or anything like that? No, I mean I did find that they have a million uh, a million on the international or the worldwide box office. They made about a million bucks, but that's really. I mean, honestly, right now Wait, that's a million dollars. That's it. Wow. Um, well, and that's the thing is that it's a device for streaming, and so they're not they. It's all proprietary, all this information, and so they may share it with their their uh, stockholders eventually, but not right now. They don't seem to be really um, sharing much of anything, to be honest. So you know. I mean, honestly, I don't think it's much of a reflection of the success of the film because uh, most of the people I've even spoke to about it um, know what it is. Uh, it, yeah. it got a 3.6 on the um, um, uh, on on IMDb, uh, mm-hmm. so it is. I mean, it's not in the negative fi- or under five, um, although. I'll be honest with you. I probably and it was it was number one streaming for a while. Um, that's it's yeah. the reason why I wanted to do to do it. I had several people reach out to me to uh, kind of to comment on it because a lot of people are saying this is a perfect example of great story structure. And mm. and then I you know watching it the first time I had a lot of opinions about it which we're going to talk about today. Uh-huh. But um, I was I was really curious because that's what everyone kept citing. They kept saying this is perfectly structured. Um, and so th- that's why I had so many people saying you have to watch this. You have to watch this. So in a way, it's, you know, today's episode is a little bit of a response to to all the okay. hate that I've been hearing from different uh, writers and filmmakers and stuff. All right. Well, uh, is, is this a listener request or a, yeah, a watcher's request? Is that? Yeah, we've had we've had quite a few people ask okay. uh, if we would review it. Also, you know, we've been doing a lot of stuff from like you know years ago. Like the most recent one right. we did was Hail Caesar. Uh, so we want to do some current ones as well um, to kind of drive, you know, the the conversation to show that it, this isn't just a historical uh, review. We want to talk about filmmaking as it's being done right now, combined with like looking at the classics. So we can like we can keep learning. We can keep looking at what the market is, the kind of artistic conversation the market is having mm-hmm. uh, combined with, you know, great classics and see what we can learn from all of them. 
Right on. I I generally would agree with that. Um, the tomato meter um, is at about eighty percent now. That's the that's the cri- critics. They seem yeah. to have somewhat liked the film, um, but okay. the audience score is much lower. It's a thirty five percent. Wow! Really? Yeah. Real dramatic. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's quite a disparity between the two numbers, and I think hmm, I think I'm with the audience on this one. Oh, really? Yeah. It was kind of down in, in the 35 region for you. Yeah. You know, it was a difficult film for me to watch. And I also think that I'm probably not the audience for this film. That's fair to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are lots of movies that I've watched that I'm like, I'm not. Uh, so, for example, um, before the movie, before the novel even got huge, I had a friend who was uh, – uh, actually friends with Stephanie Meyer and she recommended that I read it. And so when I read it, I was, I was like, I felt embarrassed. I felt like I was reading a, a a 13 year olds kind of journal, but after reading it, I was like, okay, I am definitely not the audience for this, but this is going to be huge because it is perfectly articulating the Oedipal complex from, from a girl's perspective. Mm. And, uh, which maybe we should do a breakdown of Twilight sometime. But the thing of it is, I think it nailed its audience. Ooh. Like it's, yeah. it did not. It. I'm definitely not the audience for it. Um, but uh, the people who love it love it. Like the, it's just it, it totally speaks to them. And uh, so it's fair to point out that you know we, when we're criticizing, we may not be the audience. Um, which is part of the reason why I want to look at plot and structure before we yeah. dive into the meaning of the different stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and also before we, you know, just dismiss something as like not well executed, we want to talk about why they might have made have might have made those decisions. Um, yeah, cool. Any, any other, any other thing you dug up? Uh, tell me about the filmmaker is the writer director, right? So uh, he wrote it. And yeah. Directed it. Yeah. The, the, um, the writer director, uh, Jay Blakeson, was. Mm. Um, am I saying that right? Blakeson, yeah, Blakeson, Blakeson. Anyway, Jay Blakeson. Uh, he did a sci-fi um, film a while back. Uh, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I love Blade Runner. Is one of my favorite yeah. films. Uh, ET is yeah. also another one of my favorite films. So good. He did uh, a Chloe. Moret's movie called uh, uh, The Fifth Wave, which had some really great hints of some interesting and epic ideas. Um, you know, but I, I uh, that was probably the most noteworthy of the other films that he's done. Now, he did other mm. films that you said that you either were curious about or were interested in. What were, what were those? Yeah, what was his first? Do you have IMDb open? Yeah, I do, actually. What was his first film? Um... Let's see. His first film was Vernick. It was a short. Pitch Perfect was a sh- uh, Let's see. Miss the Tale of uh, Sheepdog Puppy, The Appointment, The Descent Part 2. He wrote the screenplay in 2009 for The Descent Part 2. Oh, yeah? Disappearance of I Alice. Love the first Descent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then he... He did the disappearance of Alice Creed. He wrote again. Um, That's the one. Yeah, the the disappearance of Alice Creed because he also directed that. Mm-hmm. That one looks cool. That one I think he even acted in it as well. Okay. 
Um, that one looks cool. It's it's kind of a um, it's a story about a girl who's abducted and how she uh, works the the two abductors against each other. It's it looks, got a it good looks cast. Like a, a really clever. Yeah, really good cast. Yeah, really great cast. Uh, Gamma Adderton and uh, or Gemma or yeah. I don't I'm, Adderton and Eddie Marzen. So, yeah, yeah, those are yeah. So that one, I, that one, I want to see, but I honestly, I think this is the first movie of his that I've seen, and it's a Netflix okay, original, yeah. right? Yeah, it's yeah. a Netflix original. Cool, and it just came out this year. It just came out um, two thousand twenty-one. Pandemic year, lots of people streaming like crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I saw a lot of hype about it, and I saw a lot of screenwriters and a lot of filmmakers that were really reacting strongly to it. Mm-hmm. Which is which is a testimony uh, to it in itself, the fact that there was such yeah. a strong reaction to it. And yeah, I had totally. a very strong reaction to it, I had a very strong reaction to it, because I hadn't seen it before. I was assigned to watch it for the podcast. Okay, I, I want to delve into the the criticisms of that with you a little bit, um, but first, okay. let's put our best effort in trying to analyze how they structured the story and see what we can learn from it. Um, I, I'm kind of with you. I think this got a little overhyped, uh, largely because you know I I, th- I think the flaws really laid themselves bare. Uh, now, mostly we've been choosing films that have been that we're all kind of in awe of or love. Right. This is a movie that I think is interesting because it's generating the kind of critical hype that it is. Um and you know the disparity you're talking about between the uh critics and the audience, I think we can actually talk to it. Like I'm surprised that the frankly that the critics were giving it as much credit as they do. Um just because of the the way it was structured, and we're we're going to talk a little bit about. It. Well, actually, let's just dive into structure right now, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Story structure. Okay, so uh, of course, whenever we're talking structure, uh, we want to first uh, identify this is a two hour movie. It's just under. It's about a, an hour and fifty five minutes, and the first thing we're going to look for is the dramatic question and the climax. So, what is the dramatic question in this movie? Oh, what's the main character's name? Her uh, Marla. Marla. Will Marla yeah, Marla Grayson? Will Myra get away with uh, putting a very dangerous person uh, or committing a very dangerous person uh, in public home or not public uh, in a nursing home? Yeah, in a nursing home. Yeah. So, you know, again, the premise of the movie is about a woman who uh, takes advantage of elderly or senior citizens and yeah. puts them in a nursing home and then commandeers uh, their assets and drains them of all of their assets and their well-being, basically cheating the family of the inheritance. Um, and it starts yeah. off basically with her bragging about it, being incredibly brash. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, – I, I, honestly, I kind of loved the first half. Hmm. Um, from I thought the first half was really interesting because, because they were going so uh, clearly representing a worldview that most of the world is going to be utterly disgusted by. And I think that's so brave and so clever. And I, I, from the beginning, I was like, whoa, okay, they're doing something really interesting. 
And I was convinced. It took me a solid 30 minutes before I uh, before I saw that she was the main character. I thought the protagonist was going to be Mick on Blair. And I knew, you know, a little bit from the trailer. I tried not to watch too many trailers because I wanted to be surprised as we went. Everyone was talking about the twists and turns. And um, Macon Blair is the, the first bearded guy that that runs in and uh, attacks the, the nursing home. And then he shows up in court. And then ultimately he's the one that shoots her. Oh, yeah. Um, who's, and Macon Blair is like, I'm a huge fan of his because he, he was in, uh, he was the lead actor from Green, um, sorry, from Blue Ruin. Jeremy Salney in oh, that movie. And yeah. I, I love Blue Ruin and I love Green Room. And two two of my favorite movies, uh, completely independent and they're absolutely fantastic. But mm-hmm. Blue Ruin has a special place in my heart because they, they shot it for almost no money and it's so it's, – it's a great kind of um, – you know, I'm not going to talk about it too much because we should do an episode on it. It's, it's such a good movie. Let's do it. Um, so Macon Blair, fantastic actor, really interesting guy. Um, he, you know, he shows up in the, in the hook, but yeah. So the dramatic question, we're getting in the weeds already. <laughs> so the dramatic question, will Marla, uh, I, this is the way I phrased it. Will Marla outwit the Russian mafia boss? Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. Roman played by Peter Dinklage. Okay. So, so at this point it's like, you know, she's doing her normal routine. She's doing the same thing with this Russian mafia boss's mom as she does with everybody else. She goes to court and she uses the bully position of the court to force people uh, into into this horrible, abusive, exploitive situation. Mm. Um, and at what point do we have the dramatic question posed? I mean, I didn't. When do we go into time. Act Two? Okay. I, I didn't check. Did the you time, remember the I, events? I I remember. Uh, it had to have been. It could have been when the lawyer left the office, like when what's his face from uh, Chris Messina. Uh, yeah, yeah, Chris. Uh, yeah, from the uh, from the Mindy, Mindy Project. Project. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love him. I he's, think he's so great. He's great. I uh, loved him in this. So, scene. I loved him in that scene. Yeah, he's great. Um, yeah. Because he, the stakes uh, presented themselves. He's like, you're, you're going to remember this conversation. You know, you're going to. Yep. Uh, and it, it seemed like at that point she was. Uh, yeah, at that point the the second act started with the attempt totally of trying to free her from. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was the moment where she declared war with a mafia boss. Right. That was the moment where he, where he comes in and she's like. I know you're a mafia boss. You're working for a mafia boss. And you know what? Fuck you. I'm better. I'm smarter. I'm going to outweigh yeah. you. I'm going to win. That was the moment she declared war. Right. Um, and I actually, I really like that scene. I thought, I thought that was such a great like push and pull between Rosamund Pike and Honest- Messina. Honestly, it was probably one of the most interesting scenes because it actually had a turn in it. It was like, uh, mm-hmm. things, things turned very dark really quickly. And I, yeah. I thought both of them brought a lot to it, but, you know, there weren't a lot of scenes like that where I felt like there was kind of, uh, yeah. There was some in, very real tension. An interesting decisions. And it, it, it's one of the yeah. longer scenes, too. Like, it, the scene yeah, almost becomes it its was. own set piece. And yeah. I, I really like that scene because you, you got to see, like, for the first time, like, she's not just somebody who's kind of like a savvy lawyer who's playing the system. She's like, you know what? 
I think I can take on this Bob boss. Which, you know, it made me wonder about her past. And unfortunately, my, my, my biggest frustration with this is we really don't get much of any insight into what made her who she is. Or, Very little. Which, again, that's, that's an interesting choice. Except, you know, we, we get a quick video of her mom and she says, you know, good, get rid of her. I don't give a shit about her. Yeah. Which, you know, we never know if that's genuinely how she feels or if that's what she's telling the guy who's threatening her life and she's trying not to give yeah. him any more leverage. You know, it's not real information. We don't know if she's actually exactly. just bluffing. You yeah. Know? And we never we ne- we actually never get that insight into anything. Uh, into any of the other characters and how she feels about the other characters. All right, so the dramatic yeah. question is about 40 minutes in. So this is a really long it's first pretty act. Pretty late, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is fine because that was honestly my favorite point. It was after – I was still totally on board with the movie all the way until one specific point that we're going to get into. But um, but that first section of the movie was so interesting. They really took the time to illustrate – how she exploits people, how she cheats mm-hmm. them, how she uses the system, uh, how she's literally, you know, playing the victim by bullying other people and taking everything that, that matters to them away from them. Um, and, and they're, they're showing her process. So the, uh, so because of that, we don't even have the dramatic question until 40 minutes in because they had to take the time to really build the world and show the, the hoops that she jumps through. Um, right. So and then we get to the 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 climax, which is the answer to the dramatic question: Does she outwit uh, Roman, uh, the Peter Dinklage character? Well, she survives it. Uh, mm-hmm. To say that she outwitted him, I mean, she did outwill him, and <laughs> he was killing. He, you know, the low point of the film was when he killed her, or when he was trying to kill her. She literally was. Swimming up from the low point of the film. Uh, let's let's we'll, we'll get there in just a second. I, I want to make sure we right. get the dramatic question and climax first. Then we'll go into the other right. parts. Right. So the climax. Okay. Does she win? Does she get what she wants? Yes, she gets what she wants. Okay. So and not only does she get what she wants, she's presented a new opportunity, and they become partners. And then we get that quick montage of. How she has the least conventional wall of photographs that is completely unusable, <laughs> but they're just—it's yeah. it, a cinematic scene, so I get why they used it. But it was kind of like she's not going to be putting stickers up, like you know, getting a ladder, putting a sticker up 15 feet. A computer <laughs> can do all this, but uh, <laughs> uh, so cool. And that happens. Uh, actually, we still have another 10, almost 15 minutes uh, from the time that she solves the problem. Or from the climax uh, to the end, so the, actually the resolution or the the denouement takes quite a it's quite a bit longer, which is interesting. Um, cool. So we got the dramatic question, we got the climax. Then we want to go to the impetus, and the impetus is the presentation of the problem. Uh, what is the impetus in this movie? Okay, let's see. I mean, why does she? It would have to be the conversation with the the doctor where she's trying to get a, a new client. That's that's where I would kind of roughly put it. Okay, so when she presents her with a cherry, 
Um, yeah. I would argue that it, that's still not the impetus because that's still her daily routine. Her routine is not interrupted. As far as we know, this is literally just normal everyday routines for her. Where do, so it, where do we first get the first hint that this is not going to be a typical case? This is going to be a very unusual job for her. Well, that breaks the pattern must, and throws her world out. Of oh, balance. okay. So when she's going through the the uh, what's it called the uh, uh, safety box, the box, the safety box, and finds the diamonds. Safety deposit box. Safety deposit um, box finds the diamonds. Again, that's still, you know, she's always going through people's private stuff. The fact that she got a little bit more from this is like, oh, that's great. But it still is not, you know, the premise, the dramatic question is, will she outsmart Peter Dinklage? Will she outsmart uh, Roman? So according to your paradigm, would it be when when she talks with her girlfriend or wife about not doing it? I don't know. I'm a little bit lost on this one. Okay. Yeah, and this 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 did have a really complex because they spent a good forty minutes just trying to illustrate how she does what she does. So technically, mm-hmm. they spent over half an hour of those first forty minutes with her just seeing her daily routine because it was such right. a disturbing, haunting, upsetting thing to see. All of that was par for the course. It is not until the guy shows up with the taxi and um, okay. She, and then she's not there anymore. The mom's not there anymore. And then he goes to meet Peter Dinklage and Peter Dinklage pulls a gun on him. And we're like, oh, she's yeah. related to the mafia. Yeah. That's okay. when we're like, that okay, this is, this is, this, this is going to be a completely different situation before this. She might've gone up against like, you know, rednecks like Macon Blair, other idiots that don't know what they're doing. And she knows how to deal with them. This mm-hmm. mafioso guy is the first time. This is a whole new level of conflict. And she's ready for it, or she thinks she's ready for it. Okay. Um, so that's that's I would mark the impetus, the introduction uh, of uh, basically when we see um, Peter Dinklage and we connect that it's it's his mother uh, that has been taken, and he's a very dangerous person. Okay, and that yeah. happens. Uh, that comes in actually. It comes in right around like fifteen twenty minutes. So that's not too okay. That's not too unconventional when it comes to the story map. So, am I to understand, based on what she knew about the Cleveland Russian mob, that Peter Dinklage and the blonde dude were brothers then? No, they weren't brothers. Because they... Okay. All right. (laughs) We we can get into it. It got a little muddy, because the truth of it is, is, uh, she, she actually had... Somehow she got more information than both the police and the FBI and the Russian mob knew, which gets yeah. into uh, how did she, you know, her, her resourceful partner, Fran goes and just shows up and says, uh, it's not. Yeah. So yeah, when, her, when Fran, her partner shows up and says, she's not Jennifer Peterson. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how, you know, she, she put it she put it together by looking up different records and stuff. But them all of a sudden kind of putting it together, oh, they died in this fire, you know, all these different things is kind of um, – anyway, we'll get we'll get into that when we talk about plot holes. Um, but l- first, let's put a concerted effort in trying to really uh, understand what where the filmmaker was coming from. 
Okay. okay. Uh, so we've got the impetus, dramatic question, and, and the climax. Uh, now we want to identify the midpoint. And the midpoint is where um, they think they're achieving everything they want, and then, boom, the entire thing turns upside down. Or, mm-hmm. the, or the stakes go way through the roof. Yeah. It's when she, uh, Diane Weiss, strangles what's-her-face on camera, and she um, shows the judge, and then all of a sudden she gets committed to a psych ward. See, I would argue that that's still before the midpoint because um, Marlo was baiting her to attack her. She wanted her. She was drawing her because it basically she she played right into her hands and gave her everything mm-hmm. she wanted. So she was yeah, able to, also... to even be more severe. So I would argue that it's still not the midpoint. Um, you don't think that's the midpoint with the judge and. No, because and for Marla, sudden, the stakes are – everything's working in Marla's favor. As, so usually for the second act, um, and this plays par for the course for it, it um, each plot point is her feeling like she's making progress. And she's getting closer okay. and closer to what she wants, which is total control of the situation. Mm-hmm. And with um, Diane Weist's character – Jennifer Peterson playing into her manipulations and then using that, like, you know, the way they presented it, I'm totally convinced that Marla wanted her to attack her. She was provoking yeah. her to attack her. No, she did. I mean, there just... was actually, see, the reason why I'm saying that the stakes go through the roof is because now if, if Dinklage didn't want her dead before, he definitely wants her dead now that she's been, like fully committed into the psych ward and she's yeah. been kind of revealed as being or validating, you know, all of to this judge what okay, the judge anyway. She um, Yeah, right. I love that actor. He's so good. I love Do you remember him, him from so the wire? much. Of course. I loved that the uh the single word scene where they were doing the trajectory yeah. of the bullet. Anyway, yeah. no more weeds. But I'm just saying, like, okay. Uh, well, you know. So the- I, let me make a case. I, I think the midpoint All right. um, is the moment where basically she gets the dart in the leg in the parking lot. Okay. It's an hour, I mean, it's yeah. an hour in. So timing-wise, it's actually pretty close to the midpoint. It's just a little okay. bit over past halfway through the movie. Um, but on top of that, it's, uh, it's the moment where she, the, the, the trap door falls, opens up beneath her and she doesn't know where she's going to land. She thinks she's, she's ahead of the curve the entire time. Then all of a sudden this dart shows up and this woman just pushes her into the trunk and she's being, she and, uh, her partner, okay. Fran are both getting attacked by the mob. And, and that's, I mean, yeah. Okay. I I can so, be down with that. Yeah. So that's when that's when you know everything's like feeling like progress and then boom, midpoint, she's abducted and then we go spiraling down to the low point. Okay. Yeah, which tells my, us Go ahead. My my kind of paradigm, I generally have a I believe that um it, it's based on a decision that the protagonist would make and ultimately she makes the worst possible decision which is to entice her and get 
I mean, they, she sat in the specific place where it would be videotaped, and she would, she would make the decision that this was the worst thing she could possibly do, which is not only um, keep this woman incarcerated, but dig her into the institution so deep that basically that's what's going to propel her down to the low point is because she's invested. There's no way she can back down from this now. So here's the thing. Arguably, she's winning, though. That's a winning move. She's beating. It's a winning move. She's beating, beating Diane Weist. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's a winning it, move, but it doesn't. It doesn't shake out well. It leads to her down. It leads to her low point. It's not the right thing for her to do. If she were to, well, I mean, I mean it, you could argue that from the moment that she abducted her, it's leading to her low point. Absolutely. Under um, that but same thing. But the the truth of it is, is up to this point, she's winning. It's not until she gets the dart in her thigh that she's like. Oh fuck! She completely loses control. Sure, she's she. There, that is a very strong point to make. But I do believe it has to do with the the character's decisions. That yeah, that is absolutely. The, yeah, so something that's being done to her would not really qualify in in uh, as far as my midpoint would be concerned. I would definitely disagree with you on that okay, one. Okay, let's say, let's no, talk no, about no, what a midpoint has to is be. or what the function of the midpoint is. Okay, what Okay, go ahead. What what is what's your take on a midpoint? My midpoint is a false climax. Yeah. It's a it's a time when uh, the character makes a decision that we think is going to Oh, well the mo- uh, uh, the film is solved. Uh, we she's all she's got to do is this and uh, then we're we're good. Um, and so, the false climax would be, and I actually think a strangling is a pretty strong false climax, because what she's doing is she's goading her in to making that happen to her, and then literally Except she's she able wanted to, her to do it. Yeah, she wanted her to do it. That's right. She if yeah. she would not have done that, this was her choice. This was her doing. She chose to to provoke this woman uh, into a physical altercation. So, at what so, point does the trap door fall out from under Rosamund Pike? At what point? Yeah. When are we like, uh, oh fuck, she is fucked? Well, I I don't necessarily think that the second the the or the first climax needs to or the false climax needs to be a drop. We we basically start seeing. The drop as like the dart in the leg is a drop towards the low point. That is the first time we start to see the drop. That's the but, first time it turns. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue it that, turns like, against uh, her absolutely. Doctor Amos getting murdered. The um, the doctor that she had to deal with. Uh-huh. That, that that she's the one that handed her over to um, uh, Diane Weiss' character. Well, that's that's part um, of the tumbling down. That's a part of the at, uh, part of her falling at this to point. The low yes, point. it's definitely the presentation of the stakes. They're like, "Oh fuck!" But th- yeah. it's if anything, it's a warning sign for them, and they take it as a warning okay. sign. But she's mm-hmm. still like, I mean, you could argue that might be the be- next best candidate. But her baiting her into strangling um, Marla is still playing into her hands. So Marla still has the upper hand. It's not until she loses the upper hand that we see the reversal of fortune. And that's the big thing about the midpoint. The reversal of fortune is where we divide one strategy from the other, which is how we break up acts. 
the acts are basically the sequences arrive at a certain culmination. I understand what you're saying. However, I disagree. Okay. <laughs> cool. You make a good yeah. case that it's it's got to be motivated by the character's choices. I'm mm-hmm. just saying that it's not until she loses that upper hand that it shifts. So That's fine. I'm going to stick with hardcore midpoint is an hour and 11 minutes when she gets the dart in the leg. That's when she loses the, the upper hand, and that's what sends her spiraling to the low point. Mm-hmm. And I and I believe that she didn't make that decision that ultimately she'd never get that dart in the leg, and then she would never be she would never uh, hurl down to the low point. So, so what you said before was that she was making decisions that she was going to reap the consequences of, right? Mm-hmm. That dart yeah. in the leg is the is the well the first one consequence is that doctor is getting murdered, right? Yeah. When the doctor's murdered, that's one of the consequences. But mm-hmm. Rosamund Pike still has the upper hand. It hasn't deterred her. She's she's like, okay, we need to you know close down the office for a little bit, but we're still I, going to hold on to these people and, and manipulate them. And then as I, soon as she gets the dart, that's when she loses the upper hand. I never felt like she had the upper hand. I actually felt like she, the stakes were pretty well established once we knew that uh, that Dinklage was – uh, was the uh, the Russian guy, the guy, you know, the captain, whatever. Um, yeah. I, I never had the sense that um, she was safe. And I felt like she Not was... Not safe, but I do think that she presented herself with so much confidence that she was saying, like, I'm going to outsmart you. I'm going to win. She literally says it from scene to scene. You're not going to beat me. I- and I'll be honest with you, I really don't think that she ever did actually outsmart him. He used her to actually become legitimate. I actually think that she did not get her objective. Yeah, I, I actually I agree with that. But, but we totally anyway, disagree on the okay. midpoint. <laughs> we're going to yeah, get totally there. We're, we're going to get there. I, I do agree it's with okay. you about that specific point. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, so we've got the midpoint and then uh, the midpoint is when she gets the dart in the leg because that's when she loses the upper hand and that sends her spiraling down toward the low point. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, for, um, you know, okay. Yes. Moving on. So yes. then, so then the low point, uh, would be, would be the consequences of them just narrowly escaping. It, that's the long dark night of the soul. When they're, when they've gone through all of this, she gets her to a safe house and they just cry in each other's arms. That's when they're like, fuck, this is so fucked. And then that's when they change strategy and then all of a sudden she becomes a kind of uh, super spy and she's hunting down people and tracking people down and uh, kidnapping yeah. mob boss and all that. Um, I have a few stuff. set of skills. <laughs> We're going to talk about that too. Okay, before we get stealing in. money, money from old people. Anyway, yeah. okay. <laughs> I have a very specific set of skills. Yeah, okay. she's also a master of disguises and is able to take Apparently. out a very well-trained, huge goon. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So the low point uh, is when they narrowly escape with their lives, and they're just having that moment of like, oh, this is really scary. I'm scared. Um, and then her just saying, I think we can still pull this off. Uh, which, you know, again, I like the tenaciousness. I love, I love that about her character. I wish I was able to invest in it. In, yeah, to some degree. Um, okay, so we've got the the major um, landmarks. We got the dramatic question, climax, impetus, midpoint, low point, climb. Um, 
the hook we talked briefly about uh, when Mae Blair rushes the nursing home, and that's they use yeah. that as. And the thing of it is, is when I was watching this, I was so on Mae Blair's side. I mean, it, uh, yeah. you know, he lost me when he like spit at her and stuff like that. But I'm also like, yeah. tell me you wouldn't want to just destroy whoever was incarcerating your mother. And not letting you see her, and then draining of her, draining her of all of her assets. Uh, so now we've got the, the the overall kind of ten thousand point view, which is right. you know, the dramatic question, climax, impetus, midpoint, low point, hook. Uh, do we have any subplots in here? I no, I can't. I can't think of any. No, I agree with you. I, I think this is pretty much straightforward. Uh, she is just playing a game of chess with a very dangerous person. Yeah, and and every single every single scene is about making the moves where she can out uh, outmaneuver him. Absolutely. See, okay, let's let's go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it would have been super interesting if she would have called her mom the next day after she was, you know what I mean? Something where I would have been like, yeah. whoa, she totally, you know. Made her interesting. Anyway. Well, let's dive into the character because the whole okay. point of the structure is to reveal character. Right, right on. And uh, with with strong structure, every single choice they make, we learn more and more about the, about who they are, what they value, what's important to them, and the way they solve problems. Okay. Right. Uh, and the way we do this, uh, we uh, I have this paradigm of, the, of diving in to the inner conflict to establish the theme. The, the inner conflict is the, the mode that we establish, at least the proto-theme. The, the mm-hmm. theme, which is the lesson, uh, the proposition about the way the world works, and it's the lesson that they – and it's usually illustrated through the lesson that they learn, that the character learns. Um, so we start with the young, with the conscious desire. Uh, what is the conscious desire? Her conscious desire is she wants to be rich. She wants – Okay, she- but more specifically in this story, it's, it's connected to the dramatic question. It oh, okay. So she she wants to steal money from old people. Okay, but specifically, what is this story about? Because she was doing that before this movie started. Stealing money from old people. That's oh. she wants to outwit Roman, the Russian. Mafia oh, okay. All right. Boss. So yeah, yeah, she wants. Yeah, so, so that's what she the wants. The plot. The plot of the story. Yeah. The dramatic okay. question. The plot. is is the conscious desire is about the plot of the story. Right. And her objective in this story is to outsmart Roman. Right. Cool. Um, which leads us to the unconscious drive, which are, is her internal value system. Mm. Um, so what what do you think her unconscious, what, what do we learn from her values? This is usually where the detective work comes in and trying to kind of identify her psychological uh, motivations. Um and usually it comes in the form of kind of proving something like they unconsciously are motivated by trying to prove something like, you know, Michael Corleone was trying to prove to his father that he was worthy of taking on the mantle. Um, that that's, that's what motivated a lot of his choices. Um, in, in her case, in Marla's case, what do you, what, how would you identify the unconscious drive? To be honest, I, I have a really hard time, uh, identifying the unconscious drive because I don't know if I have that much information about her. I know that she has a very nice home and she has a 
love life and she has a business that she's running and she has every intention of keeping that business going. She sees herself. Well, okay, we can look at certain earmarks. So, uh, so sure. the unconscious drive is composed of sacred values. Yeah. Like, so what she holds sacred and then what really offends her. In fact, often the best way to identify uh, what is sacred to a person is find out what makes them so angry that they're just they they're they can barely contain themselves. Yeah, she doesn't want to lose. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That right there. She is trying to prove that she can outsmart anybody. Right. But more importantly, she wants to outsmart them by playing by the rules. She wants to use the rules as a weapon against people. Okay. That's the moment where she's most furious, where she expresses the most anger, where she's showing profane, like it's a profane response. Mm -hmm. So what's sacred to her, basically she's like, I want to play a chess. I know all of these tricks and I can beat you at chess. But if you're just going to walk up and pick up the, uh, you know, pick up the king and throw him on the ground and step on him, that's breaking the rules. And that's what Roman was to her. Roman was this guy that was coming up saying, I'm not even going to bother playing chess. I'm just going to take your pawns and smash them on the ground right. until you give me my queen back. And she did so, have that moment when she said, I'm doing this because your boss didn't play by the rules. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's it's, it's a great scene where we actually get to see some sense of the world and how she feels about it. So she is mm. highly motivated by ego um, she's learned how to adapt to these uh, to this situation. Her moral sphere is using the courts and using the laws to trap people and exploit them. Right. Um, so she's got her little spider web, and anybody who wants to to attack her spider web makes her furious. Mm -hmm. That's that's where she's she's most angry because she uses the law against people. She right. like that's that's what makes her such an infuriating character. She exploits the law. She doesn't do it for, for the benefit of people, which is the intention of the law. She does it to hurt people for her own benefit. Right. Um, so she, her unconscious drive, she's trying to prove she can outsmart, outmaneuver anyone by gaming the system. So then her Achilles heel, her weakness, is implicit in that, which is using the law as a weapon has its limitations. So what she ends up learning is that she has to go beyond the law. So up to that point, up to the point where she gets abducted and uh, her partner, Fran, is uh, beat up, knocked unconscious, and they leave the gas on, um, that um, after that, they start going into full-on mafioso mode. They start do, they, 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 uh, do a breaking and entering. They follow... Uh, some guy to his home. They end up uh, drugging him, kidnapping him, and then they kidnap the mafia boss, drug him. So they're using mafia tactics. So she goes outside of her own moral sphere. She breaks beyond her web and then expands the web yeah. and starts using their weapon against them. Yeah. So um, so basically she, she learns that the law uh, as a weapon has its limitations. So she goes beyond the law. She breaks the law. Right. Um, which implies that the moral imperative, the bouncer that says, if you want to survive this, if you want to outsmart Roman, the way you got to do it, uh, you have to go outside the system. You can't play by the system and beat Roman because Roman doesn't care about the system. Right. Okay. Um, 
And then, of course, the theme, they they just telegraph the theme a thousand times. To be successful in America, playing by the law isn't enough. You have to break them, too. Right. So, you know, it, it starts off being a really interesting conversation about the tension between uh, ethics and legality. Mm-hmm. She's she's somebody who is utterly unethical and yet does everything by the law. It's it's an interesting contradiction. In fact, I think it, she would make a really fascinating, um, a really fascinating character antagonist. But I agree with you. I I think ultimately, she had about the the depth and uh, emotional complexity of just uh, she was largely a one-dimensional villain she just wanted to beat everybody we don't know why she wanted to beat everybody we can make some guesses or extrapolate but we just know what we do know is that what was sacred to her was winning period just winning and beating everybody using the system that she had to right um which which brings into the question of uh so you know, if if we look at her psychological profile, she played very cold. She played very tough every time she was confronted. She's, you know, she said, I didn't scare. Her. You know, there's that awkward scene where he says, you're not afraid of death. And she's like, you're going to die. And she goes, okay. And he's like, you're not afraid of death. And she goes, I'm not afraid of the year 1807, which sounds like a conversation that somebody had online. And they're like, we're going to put that in the script. It was. Yeah. I, I just don't see a mafioso boss saying, whoa, she's not even scared. And most people start begging for their life. It was a little like, it, it, to me, it felt very Jack Reacher. You know, it felt very like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to show you what it is to be, to hold leverage. Mm. Uh, it, Quentin it Tarantino. Play. I think Quentin Tarantino actually plays with those things in, in a lot more clever way. Sure. Um, I, I love Tarantino. But... um so do you think Marla was a narcissist or was she just a sociopath? I don't so know. Let's, let's draw the difference. So, so the sociopath, um, you know, there's a psychopath test. And sociopathy is a specific form of psychopathy where um, you are, are not connecting. You're not seeing other people as having feelings, as having full lives. You see them largely as, you know, objects or um, – obstacles or you know pieces of meat that move around Mm. um but then a narcissist is a very different thing narcissist is actually one of the most dangerous forms of psychopathy because um you know a lot of people confuse solipsism for narcissism solipsism is where you kind of see yourself as the center of the world like social media and tiktok and uh, like YouTube, for example, a lot of it is about solipsism. It's a, a lot of it is kind of like, I'm going to build my audience and everyone's going to love me. Narcissism, uh, isn't just, you know, kind of putting yourself at the center of the world. Narcissism is where you become irate. If anyone disagrees with you, you, in, you have to interpret the world for other people, which is, you know, a lot of pundits probably are, are pretty narcissistic because they, they are so passionately connected to one single interpretation of the world and they have to have that interpretation. Right. Like my interpretation of midpoint has to be that. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it around. Bring it around. Oh. Uh, uh, I, so, I don't. And the thing that is, is – go ahead. 
You posed a question I just wanted to answer. I don't know if there's enough. Yeah, go for it. I don't know if there's enough evidence for me to decide that she's a narcissist. I definitely think she had very selfish motives. Um, However, her treatment of her... Are we moving into the plot holes now? Are we... No, we, not yet. We're no, still no, trying to. Still we're just trying to kind of. We're still trying to understand her character okay. and the, the why they wrote her character the way they did You're, in order sure. to motivate the plot. Sure. So we're not quite getting into the to the plot holes, but we'll, we'll get okay. There. All right. So I mean, with her, I don't have enough evidence to say that she's a narcissist. I I do think that she suffers from some sociopathy in that she does see the average human being as an obstacle. Um, She obviously sees these people and their livelihoods. I mean, she's literally stealing. Um, When you, uh, when you're stealing from a senior, you're literally stealing the time that they took to make the money that they had. You're stealing their life from them. And so in that way, she is kind of a uh, a vampire, uh, kind of a – she's sucking yeah, people she's dry, people. Uh, yeah. a harpy or uh, whatever. Yeah. I, well, I mean there are, there are certain patterns we're seeing. Like, for example, uh, her own partner was expressing like lots of reservation, lots of resistance. Right. And she – you know, literally her own partner was her personal assistant. Yeah. I like feel so bad right for her. Is, I do. I feel awful for her, too. I feel too. so bad for her. So everyone in her life, in some way, she has positioned them to serve her. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it, it drives back to the thing of just she, she's a detestable character. She's a detestable person. Sure. So before we dive into to plot holes and stuff, what I want to point out is the thing that I got so excited about this was it, at first on the surface, it appeared to be a great illustration of a moral mosaic. Yeah. Now, most movies start off with kind of this hero story, and they're they're very concerned with making a character likable, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, a lot of people waste a lot of time trying not to offend their audience and trying <laughs> to be like, aren't they great? Don't you want to be just like them? They're just sure. the most wonderful, endearing, lovable people. They save the fucking cat. This is going to work. Uh. You love them for, for just being good people. They're a good person. And what I loved about this, and this is why I was so on board from the beginning, was that she was like, no, fuck all this. I want something. I'm going to go after it. And I'm going to outsmart you at every single level. And I'm like, that's that's such a great character. It's so fascinating. And then her char- charisma was, you know, like, you know, the glib, dark irony was was kind of motivating all of the different interactions that she had. Um, a, a good comparison would be um, uh, thank you for smoking. Sure. Yeah. So, uh and by good comparison, I mean I think Thank You for Smoking is actually a much more successful film artistically. Yeah. Um, Thank You for Smoking uh, was about a guy who – a great example of a moral mosaic. Now, the moral mosaic simply says that people with deeply uh, distinct value systems, uh, we're going to explore them. And she's the protagonist and she has a very different value system than I have, which means she's going to make me confront value systems – 
uh, in such a way that I'm like, I, I have to reckon with this, you know, and that's, that's great. Cause I love stories that challenge my views. Like that's what I liked about breaking bad the whole time that Walter white was descending into uh, this Heisenberg character. I was so disturbed and utterly fascinated. So at first with, with this character, with Marla, I was totally fascinated by her. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. I can't wait to see the dimension and the way they fill her out, fill out her character sure. and show why she thinks this is the right thing to do. And ultimately this is where I think it does kind of fall flat because they never really had a good justification. Now they did bring up, you know, yeah. um, you know, trying to make it in America. Uh, it, she turns it into a criticism of capitalism. But yeah. the truth of it is, is she did that when she was being faced with, you know, she was tied to a chair facing a mafia boss. So every time she used any excuse, she was latching on to whatever pressure point that person might respond to, which makes me think she never actually believed any of them. No. Or that character. I think she was cynically presenting whatever ideology to rationalize her choices as a way of saying, you know, like, for example, the way she uh, a, attacked Macon Blair, you know, saying like, you're, you're just mad that a, you know, a person with a vagina beat you in there because that's what would make him feel provoked and belittled. Mm -hmm. And then later, all of these other criticisms aren't uh, aren't justifications that she actually feels. I don't believe for a second she feels any justification other than I want it. I'm going to take it. Which is unfortunate because that's a, that's why I think it, it failed the, the moral mosaic because it didn't give me a greater insight into that character. It simply took a villain, uh, someone who is morally reprehensible, and said, "Let's just follow her for a while." Yeah. Now it was interesting because you know she was she was definitely the underdog for a few different scenes, um, like when you know when she was fighting for her life, she was definitely the underdog. Um, but the problem is, is, you know, her love for Fran, for her partner. Yeah. Often I think they tried to use that as saying, you know, she's got love here. She really loves her. But the truth of it is, is she was only giving Fran just enough of what she needed to keep Fran on the hook. The same with everybody else. Right. So that wasn't a redeeming quality. It only showed that she's willing to show affection when Fran needs it. And she's willing to give Fran things, little concessions here and there, as long as she keeps being her assistant and doing all the job that she needs for her, from her. Yeah, and so I think, ultimately, I think if the audience goes on autopilot, they start thinking, "Oh, well, her with Fran is her real self." But the truth is, we don't even have evidence that that's the case. We don't have any evidence that that is actually how she is because they never they never showed us anything. They never showed us. Um, a moment where she was actually genuinely, um, you know, I mean, they start, I mean, the, the scene where they reveal that they're, that they're, uh, a couple is very, very much, um, uh, keeps, kept me at very much at arm's length because it was just them in silhouette making out. It wasn't really an intimate, beautiful scene that would have worked on a level that made me go, oh, wow, she really has feelings for her. It was just kind of yeah, like Yeah, they're definitely sexually attracted. Yeah. But then on top of that, when when Fran, when they're taking down Diane Weiss' character, uh -huh. um, Jennifer Peterson, when they're Jennifer taking down Peterson. Jennifer Peterson, Fran 
is willing to sit there and smile and push her around and force her and trap her uh, and be just as unethical as Marla, which made me think, well, Fran is just as horrible as Marla. So their love and their passion doesn't really mean that much to me. I didn't yeah. have an emotional reaction because I, they were ethically incredibly corrupt. Now mm -hmm. the, the job of a moral mosaic is to, is to help characters to really give us the, the immersive ability, like Godfather two, perfect example, Robert De Niro's character. Really, when you see that story, you really understand why Robert De Niro's character became the Godfather because the local law was so corrupt. Italians had to take care of Italians because the local law enforcement wouldn't do anything for them. And then there were other mob bosses and other gangs that were all manipulating each other. And if I were in that situation, mm -hmm. I would feel justified. And that, and you know, so Godfather Two is a perfect. Actually, both of the Godfather first, first and second um, were great examples of. If I were put in that world, I like to think that I, I can see why I would probably make those decisions too. Right now, in this case, there was no justification. Just saying, um, just saying that in America you have to cheat to win. That that comes off as a rationalization. They didn't teach me. They didn't make me feel like she was justified in it. She didn't feel justified in anything she did. Mm -mm. And that was, you know what? We're already well into plot holes. <laughs> we'll just, right? I'll just okay. throw up the tag. Shut your plot holes. Yeah, We're doing go. plot holes. Shut your plot hole. I do have a list. Let's let, let's let's go into the list. Literally. Okay. All right. Um. So my biggest criticism, above all, um comes down to story logic. Uh, mm -hmm. And, I, you know, first and foremost, above everything, I wish that they'd fleshed out her character to have some depth, not to make her warm, not to make her likable, but to help me really feel that she had good reasons for making the decisions she did. And I, I don't feel like they did a good job in developing her just her internal justifications. She's somebody who is totally fine being condemned by other people. Um, mm -hmm. but that, that's not enough of a, you know, a, what is motivating her? Why does she care so much about this? Right. There's no indication of that. No. And because of that, that's where there was so much disconnection, so much flatness. Mm -hmm. Um, but then worse than that were the, were the choices, were the, were the plot choices. Um, now the first, the, the biggest, the moment where there was one specific moment where I completely disengaged. Like the first part of the movie, I was totally fascinated by it. I was disturbed. It was like watching like a documentary about a serial killer. Um, or I was just so disturbed that I want to know what's going on and what's motivating this and how, you know, I want to, I want to learn everything I can about him. But the moment where I totally disengaged was where they put her in the car, they drugged her, put her foot on the wheel, put the bottle under her knee <laughs> And she drove off down the, down the road, and then she wakes up just as she's going in the water. Yeah. She was drugged. They drugged her. She, According to that, apparently this drug only works for maybe 20 minutes, <laughs> half an hour. I mean, Dramamine has, like, more power than that. Well, but they, they, they took the time to stick a, 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 a hose down her throat, through her nose, down her throat, and then give her the drug. 
It's the no, only reason they showed that scene. Well, it was vodka. I mean, they filled her full of vodka, and they also drugged her to keep her asleep while they were doing it. That's why she was... So it, that's my point. Is like she wakes up and is suddenly like completely alert, completely aware, just in time to save herself from drowning. If I drank that what much, what a vo- remarkable coincidence! Yeah. If I was drinking that much vodka, I'd be like, "Oh, I want water." Cool. You know, I, sure. I, the truth is that so stuff's even if going through even her if system. she did wake up, yeah, that stuff Crazy. was going through her system. Just nuts. Um, Just but nuts. then on top of that, like, uh, so she resurfaces, right? Right. She screams. Now these, yeah, she screams and she goes, ah, just does that, um, the Vader rage. Um, the thing of it is, is, uh, so she had two killers who put her in the car, drove it off of the car, and it, it drives for a solid block before it hits the railing, goes mm. into a forest how do they know that it wasn't going to hit a tree and just get stuck? So it drives through this little stretch of forest in over the cliff into a reservoir and then sinks. And they're like, yeah. well, we probably don't need to stick around to make sure she doesn't resurface. Right. So the two professional killers. Always put two in the head. <laughs> Always put, put two, in, two the in the head. We learned that from Miller's Crossing. Yeah. Um, two professional killers were like, eh, she's probably dead. Yeah, she's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll it's say good. she's dead. And then she resurfaces, uh, you know, in the real world, say some killers actually did that. She comes up, she resurfaces. The two killers are standing there at the bank with guns saying no back in the water. Or in the... Pr- probably putting a bullet in her head. And yeah. then the other thing is, she he says, make it look. Yeah. She's calling him out. And then on top of that, they say, make it look organic. It's like, mm. well, you didn't make the doctor look organic. They put a bullet in her head. Yeah. It was yeah. clearly murder. They said she was murdered. She disappeared and then she was murdered. Her body was found. Mm. And I'm like, so why did they have to look organic, but the doctor doesn't? Yeah. So, so then she goes over to, um, to the house, you know, her, her, by bad coincidence, just thankfully for the murderers, she forgets the passports, so Fran goes back to their original house where the murderers are waiting. Or they're not waiting. They catch her in the moment she just happened to drive by the house. Right. They beat her up, knock her unconscious, turn on the gas, and then leave? So uh, Marla gets home. She's, she finds her. Again, it's like, <laughs> how did she find her? I, I, she's like, I guess she, I guess she went back to the house. To get the passport. So I'm going to go to the house to get the passports. That's the only thing she can do, I guess. Because somehow psychically she knew that she would be at the house getting passports. She goes home. She finds her. She's alive. And the house is filling full of gas. Which she would have smelled it before then. Yeah. She would have smelled it the second she walked in the door. Yeah. And then she starts coughing. You know, the uh, Fran starts coughing. And you're like, oh, good. She's still alive. I'm like, okay, this is going dark. Okay, they're, at least the stakes are bearing out. Yeah. I thought she was dead. But then they get in the car. I thought she was dead too. And then when she started coughing, I was like, no. Okay, no. First of all, she doesn't wake up just in time to swim to the surface. No. no. I don't buy that. And then they let her swim to the surface without checking. I don't buy that. And then they let Fran live. They leave the house full of gas and then just walk away. These are the worst professional killers I've ever heard of. 
Well, they're from Cleveland. They're from Cleveland. <laughs> and, you know. So then, on, so then on top of that, they um, she she gets in the car with Fran. They drive off and the house explodes. <laughs> and it's like just in time, again, another coincidence that thankfully they just got lucky. So you're right. She did not outthink Roman. She just got lucky. Yeah. Was it not? I mean, except for all of the, except that Roman employs the stupidest, <laughs> uh, most like unprofessional <laughs> killers ever yeah. to do the job, only to serve the plot. Now, th- this is why I disengaged completely. Was this simple principle is if the success of the protagonist totally depends on the incompetence of the antagonist then you completely disengage from the plot. Right. You don't suspension care anymore. There's no more suspension to disbelieve. It's like at that point you just kind of go, screw this. Yeah, you're just say- you're saying you're insulting the audience by saying, yeah. uh, just just take the take the coincidences. It was really hard for her to swim to the surface. <laughs> so the truth of it is, is I I was fascinated by um, a protagonist that was that sincerely was committed to doing horrible things for her own well-being, for her own uh, survival, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's like, literally... I thought that was so great, and I, I, I would have loved to have seen that. But um, but instead, uh, she just became one-dimensional. And it was, yeah. you know, I, I know that they're going for dark, uh, for dark humor yeah. or dark irony. I wouldn't even say it's humor. I think, I think it's dark irony. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's you know the whole time you're supposed to just be like wow she's so ballsy that's she's so just uh, flippant and flagrant and manipulative and that I really like those scenes I actually really like the scenes like when she was um, the way that she manipulated Macon Blair the way she manipulated the lawyer and like pretended to be like well I'm just here to help people you know that's such a great two faced kind of dimension mm-hmm. of the character but sure. in the end it's like it didn't uh it just made you hate her at every single step of the way yeah so i i found myself like never really rooting for her um be, because i didn't have any sense of why she needed this why it meant something to her mm-hmm. i just know that she wanted to win um and, and the irony it was you know they showed how horrible and abusive she was they they talked about how um, Roman and you know Peter Dinklage's character was a killer, was a murderer. He did trafficking. He smuggled drugs. He had drug mules, probably human trafficking too. But we didn't see any of that. So if you know if we would have seen a scene where Peter Dinklage is just being this awful, horrible, brutal person, I actually might have been a little more sympathetic to her to be like, whoa, this guy's really dangerous. Like, he's really dangerous. You don't fuck with this guy. Yeah. And then when she does, I would have felt a little, like, more like, yeah, go get her. Like, go get him. He's, she's, yeah, go kick some ass. Like, this guy's really dangerous. He has it coming. Instead, they show Peter Dinklage, who's choosing some macaroons for his mother, some eclairs, and then... Uh, and then he's really upset that he can't see his mother. And I'm like, I'm with him. <laughs> I'm totally with him. And the, 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 um... As I start looking at the psychological profiles of both of these, of both of these characters, I start looking at like about the age three. About age three is when children start really getting 
ticked off that they're not winning a race. They have to win every race or they're not going to, you know what I mean? It's like, and at a certain point, I'm kind of looking at Dinklage and I'm looking at Pike and going, their arrested development must be right around three years old. Because (laughs) I wanted to win. I need to win. It's like, okay, you win. The, the ultimately, because the thing is, is we didn't, we, there, for two hours, we still don't know that much about the characters. By the end of the resolve, which is literally the descending action, and she, and she's, you know, spoiler alert, but she, she gets shot in the chest by Macon Blair, and we don't even know if Dinklage was the one that put the gun in his hand. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, this is for my mom. You know what's interesting? That never even occurred to me that Peter Dinklage might have done that. I, th- that's the thing is that it's like, I mean, she was the – In fact, the, I assume he wouldn't because he wouldn't want to shoot the Golden Goose. Yeah, well, what he's already done is he's crossed over into legitimacy and now um, he has her taken out. And he just puts someone in who's who who's not so problematic. Well, I don't I don't actually believe that it was Peter Dinklage. I well, don't, I don't either. I don't either. I'm just saying that you can you can make an argument for that because ultimately we don't know. There was nothing that we really yeah, knew well, about these I mean, guys. The truth of it is, is I do like that he just came up and shot her uh, for the purposes of the story because, sure. it, like, at least it was like they set it up at the beginning. I totally understand that she is driving probably an emotionally unstable person over the edge. Mm-hmm. And he's going to show up later. Like that was clear. They set that fuse at the beginning, and then that was the payoff. So I that I think worked story wise. The problem is, is what does that say? Like she ends up getting murdered. So I guess the moral of the story is, you know, it, it lost all of its dramatic irony. It lost all of the irony, actually. Like when you know, like the the guy that she set up before was the guy who killed her. I, I don't it, it ended up being so muddy with the theme. Like at first you're like, okay, this is really interesting because they're gonna end up being partners. I'm like, that's an interesting turn. I wish I cared. I wish I believed yeah. in these people. Like for example, uh, Peter Dinklage, Roman's character, like he is the softest uh, like uh mafia boss, Russian mafia boss right? I've ever seen. Like he's First, he comes off as a bit of. At first, he's totally like a loving son. And then he comes off as a caricature. He's just throwing tantrums every time she, you know, they come back and she's won this round kind of thing. Right. Um, and then, but that, you know, imagine like Joe Pesci, you know, imagine she takes Joe Pesci's mom, puts her in the nursing home. I'm sorry, Joe Pesci from Goodfellas, the character. He right. Okay. Like, do you, you know, like, tell me, like, Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, and Ray Liotta are not going to just go over there and just do horrible things until they get his mom back. Yeah. Like, that's that's the level of stakes that I would have believed in. But yeah. for for Marla to to have the kind of chess game that she had with Roman. <laughs> then that means Roman had to actually be a really gentle kind of mob enforcer, which well, is like that's those two don't equate. And the thing is, is the guy has her tied down to a chair in a quarry of some sort. And yeah. I mean, he doesn't peel off her fingernails. He doesn't, you know, he, he he's like, oh, let's set up an elaborate way. Uh, you guys got, you know, 
a uh, he's an organic mob boss. He's an organic mob boss. He's a holistic uh, organic. organic. See, yeah. if you use onyx on your lower um, chakra, it really causes some uh, missing. I don't. I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> the thing with uh, I get where you're coming from. It is. It drove me crazy. It's like. Have you ever played that game Mousetrap when you were a kid? The Mousetrap where it has the, the um, what's it called? The, uh, um, what's the elaborate machine? Like Tim Burton. The oh, uh, Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, he's like, let's do some sort of Rube Goldberg kind of killing. Where it's yeah. like, dude, you're a Russian mobster. Uh, cut off her head. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, none of this makes any sense. And it doesn't... Yeah, well, they were afraid of going too dark. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was already rated R. It's not like... Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so I, I do think this, this film started off in a really interesting place. I would have loved to have seen a movie that genuinely explored the whole... Um, exploitation of senior citizens in that way. Like, you know, I actually, I would have loved a story about mm. Macon Blair trying to take her on and figuring out a way to get smarter. That would right? have been really fascinating. Very interesting. And, you know, and then even if she wins, at least what I liked about it is you walk away from this being so furious about anyone that would ever do it. Sure. And it pretends to be some sort of justification and it's, it's not a justification. It's, you know, it's, it's showing, you know, ultimately it, I felt like it was a tacked on theme, basically kind of a criticism of capitalism saying like, you know, this, you know, this is how, this is how all corporations become corporations right? by, you know, murdering and cheating and cheating the law and all that stuff, which is, um, it's a caricature of, yeah. of the way things work. Right. But, um, I don't know, it, it, but you know, I, I start off really interesting, but the moment, I mean, I do think when the moment when Alexi went in with the gun and, you know, started shooting up the nursing home, I was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is a little over the top. Like, you know, she like what I loved about that character, at least at the beginning, was that she was able to play all of these different roles to manipulate people to win. And then that movie stopped and then it turned into all of a sudden she's a super spy who can hunt down people, who can take out, you know, uh, she can take out goons and thugs. She can do breaking and entering and she's, you know, spiraling around like uh, Mission Impossible uh, underneath a car in a garage and all that shit. And I'm like, that's, and then she's a master of disguises and then she can single-handedly abduct a very well-guarded, dangerous person. And I'm like, uh, like what I liked was, you know, when they're playing in her field, she can outsmart people and mm-hmm. I would have liked to see how she uses the, the intelligence right. to be able to solve the problem. And instead she just, they just went to, well, she's just a super spy. Now she's just very well trained uh, in her spy craft. And I know and, what the um, defense of that is, is the, the police officer saying, Hey, you did a really good job catching that guy. Maybe you should do what we do. And it's like, uh, I mean, when he, when she mm. put the bag over his head and then hit him in the gut with a, uh, yeah. Uh, bat, and she, and, yeah. and then, and then the cop came to her and said, "Man, that's impressive." You know, at, at the same time, it's like, 
<sighs> I mean, and the truth is, is that that I didn't like that scene with the you know the guns in the in the yeah in the uh, nursing home, in the home because I I was it was a uh, yeah it was a little bit pushing it as far as I was concerned. However, it did become interesting because there was a moment where he's like. I I liked when he said, um, "I'm." You have to ask yourself: Are you willing to die to stop me? Because I'm willing to kill you to get through you. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it was like, and I, which is and interesting because that character did not seem smart enough to be that articulate. Well, y- yeah, sure, I'll I give mean, it to you. I'll give it to you. But at the but, same time, but where I was, I was dead, where I was dead out, the moment I was out was when the killers were just like, well. She drove into a lake. She's probably dead. Our job is done. That's uh, no. That's you don't get you don't get to do that. That's where the story falls yeah, apart for me. Absolutely. That's where I think the. Um, I like the premise. The premise could have could have been really interesting, but I think ultimately they had the responsibility of making her smarter. The 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 writing needed to be a little smarter in order to show how she is able to outmaneuver this guy. And I actually yeah. think "Thank You for Smoking" is a really great example of it is. Uh, of you know actually doing that. Yeah, and I, I think the structure of the writing shows that that one very obvious thing is that her survival depended on professional experts not being able to do their job. Right. The whole thing falls apart for that. Then she not only did she get lucky, she. The only reason she survived is because her antagonists were incompetent, right? Which that's that's the death of the story. Unless unless it's a joke about that, but that wasn't playing a joke. They were it trying didn't, to make him menacing, and it kind of kills the stakes a lot when you start realizing. You don't believe that, in the stakes anymore. Once yeah, you do that, no there are no stakes. Yeah, because you stopped investing because you're like, well, I guess she's just going to keep getting lucky. It doesn't. Sure. She doesn't have to think her way out of it. Which is why I liked the first half of the movie because it wasn't her getting lucky. It was her outsmarting people. Right. And that's what I loved about it. I was like, okay, this is really cool. I love the way she's manipulating everybody. She plays this way to this person and then this way to this person. You know, this way to make on Blair and then this way to the judge and then this way to the to the lawyer. Like all of those scenes were so great. And then it went. It was like two different people wrote two different scripts. Like it just completely flopped because they're like, I don't know. She just has to get out of it. I guess she'll just get lucky. You know, and, and we say that she, um, that she was uh, following the rules, but man, that dull, that, that judge had to be, uh, had to be getting a kickback of some sort. If he was constantly just, well, you know, what's going on. What should I do? You know yeah. what I mean? But it's we like, do know of cases where judges were taking kickbacks in re, in the real world. So yeah, yeah. So maybe that's uh, one of her rules at the first half of the show that she kept was the fact that the judge was, you know, on her payroll. I don't know. Yeah, I would I would have liked to have seen the, the the exploration. What I liked about it was the theme of the the first half of the movie was all about how. Uh, one bad actor can exploit a system that's designed to help people and use it to exploit people. And that's interesting. And everybody, exactly, everybody acting like the the judge, um, the like the the caregivers, 
all those people were there probably thinking, I'm helping these people through a very difficult time. Right. Not realizing they're actually behaving like thugs. And she's yeah. turning them into thugs against yeah. their own knowledge. That, I think, is really interesting. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it wasn't explored at all in this at movie. All. See, and that was when he said that very declarative statement where he said, are you ready to die because I'm ready to kill you? If, you yeah. know, I thought, okay, maybe we're seeing theme here. Well, what are we, you know... Are these? It didn't, and, but didn't go it, anywhere with it. It was just a pithy saying that he just somehow was smart enough to say in the middle of a very stressful situation. I don't know. Yeah. I, it, it just yeah. wasn't to me. Yeah, I, it, that was like raising my interest, and in maybe okay, maybe he's going to be important in this film. Maybe, but no, no it was just a, yeah. It was just kind of like. Eh, We'll just yeah. do off with him because, you know, yeah. Rosamond and – or Rosamond and, and Dinklage Marla. are – are our, yeah, Marla and, and – uh, Roman. Know, Roman. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Marla and well, Roman are our, our, our uh, protagonists or our lead actors here, so we're just going to follow them. And it's just – Yeah. It, it's – yeah, it's infuriating. It was infuriating to watch. I, th- I think we got. I think we're harping a little bit, so I want to kind of wrap this. That's up. That's fine. I get in it. the end, the reason why I wanted to do this after watching the movie was because I think this is a really good illustration of something that started off as a very clever, very smart premise, right, and then fell apart because of some plot decisions. Mm-hmm. The the you know these choices of like well you know. The low point or the the midpoint definitely needs to be when uh, he grabs her and is, you know, they've got the typical, the stereotypical mafia quarry tied to a chair scene. She's dead. How does she get out of it? You know, and, and it should have been, they should have figured out some way that she anticipated that and figured out some way to leverage her way out of it. Had Instead, to be her it own was, decision. She just got lucky. Yeah. It would have been way more interesting if they would have just kicked her right off the edge of the cliff right there. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they just kick her off the cliff? Yeah. Tied to the chair. Anyway. All right. I'll um, stop harping. I will stop harping. Yeah. What I want to take away from this is that we can learn from seeing some some glaring uh, development issues. Like, you know, this – honestly, this could have been a decent draft that just needed some rewriting. Because there's there's lots of really good material here, but ultimately I think it all it kind of cheated itself of its premise sure. by uh, by bad plotting. So, okay. um, yeah. So that is our <laughs> that's that was one of the more grim vivisections we've had. Uh, it's uh, sorry, it, you know. I still recommend people watch it. I think people yeah. should watch it. I think you should engage it. Come up with your own opinion. Decide why you like it. And then come up with your own points why I'm wrong. And offer me some good reasons why I need to revisit the film and reinterpret it. I'm totally open to that. Um, But it really comes down to I was out. The movie was irredeemable with that that quarry scene. Right. Yeah, and I I would love to be told um, or explain to me why – why this this didn't work for me? I mean, I, I other than the fact that I stated, it's just not my. I'm not the audience. I'm not the audience for this. Yeah, could be that we're just not the audience. That's yeah. possible. Sure. Cool. All right. Well, uh, that's our vivisection for I care a lot. You want a vivisection? Um, 
some really good stuff in there. Um, I think it could have been developed more, but, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, be sure and join us on YouTube, follow us on TikTok, uh, Instagram at Adam Skelter. Um, and then, uh, also subscribe on, uh, YouTube and be sure and, uh, subscribe to storykinetics.com where you can get all the updates and all the diagrams from all the different shows or all the different movies that we're reviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then next week movie is going to be. Thanks a lot, Todd. This was a really good discussion. Oh, uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I love it. I have a great time. Thanks I love so talking much. about movies. Yeah, I even love too. talking about movies that I don't feel like we're very right? successful. I, it's I, actually it kind of work for me. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll see you next week. Hey, I got a gun. Can I be a gun? Hey, go fetch it.